0: Cape Talk. Plan B with Rebecca Davis.
1: Hello, Rebecca. Hello, John. Is it hot outside? It is boiling. It's very, very hot. For once I'm grateful for your Arctic air conditioning in For here. once. For once. Do
0: you normally resent it?
1: I do deeply. <laughs>
0: yes. I'm sorry. I spend the greatest amount of time in here, so it's you only reasonable the and air conditioning. George, you're long yeah, but suffering you're, yeah. Well, he's not long suffering. He's only been with me for months, so he's hardly <laughs> long suffering. <laughs> Uh, very interesting, this, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's decision today to directly take on Sir, um, uh, Monsieur Lakota's mm. accusations yesterday that he was a sellout who'd informed and was rewarded by the special branch for that mm. informing.
1: I mean, I think it's it's kind of understandable that he would have to do so because we've seen, John, that the effects of these claims are not… Hypothetical that people lose careers, that people have lost lives over this. It's interesting, the timing, though, because there was a period just over a decade ago where there seemed to be this real mania. For the, that was when, of course, the NPA head, Bulilani Muka, lost his job as a result of such allegations. What makes it particularly perplexing to me that Lakota would make these claims is that Lakota himself... Was fingered In 2005, when he was defense minister, City Press published an article accusing him, Lakota, of being a spy for the apartheid regime, to which he responded with great, you know, great anguish and sued them and the rest of it. So the fact that he would now um, in turn point the finger at Ramaphosa is, you know, concerning. And people have said the ANC today claimed it was an electoral po- ploy from Cope. I Actually, I'm, I'm not convinced that is it, John. I think there's something I, a bit I, more... I watched
0: YouTube footage of it later on. I wasn't able to watch it live. Mm-hmm. And, and it it, it had a, a kind of personal involvement in what he was saying which made it seem to me more than something deliberately done in order to get electoral attention. I
1: think that's right. I think that Lakota has the air at the moment of someone who is beginning to fray a bit around the edges in a personal mental health sense. And we saw that last year around the land debate where he was You know, crying in interviews, talking about his sense of betrayal around the ANC's proposed land policies. I think there definitely is a a personal animus that is driving this. And, you know, here is somebody in the form of Lakota who made this incredible sacrifice. He went to to Robben Island. He then arguably made a second sacrifice in 2008 when he left the ANC after Mbeki's recall. And if you've read Cope's recent election material. He's repeatedly saying, I've been proved right, I've been proved right, I was right to leave, you know, everything since 2008 was a disaster. And yet, what has he got to show for it, I suppose? Mm-hmm. You know, here he is, he's he's done the right thing twice and has no reward for it. Whereas, I guess in his view, someone like Sawa Ramaphosa, who at the least was a fence-sitter during the, the Zuma era, has now been rewarded with top off- off- offers. So I do think that there's, there is something personal behind that. But also, John, as I was saying, the, the fact that this comes in the same week that the SACP Deputy Secretary-General, Solima Paila, accused Robert Tsubukwe of having received preferential treatment by the apartheid regime, suggests that there is something in the air at the moment leading to these kind of contested notions of history and betrayal and the rest of it, which I was thinking about. And I think, first of all, what allows these rumors to flourish at the moment points to the failure of transitional justice after apartheid. You know, the fact that so few of apartheid's criminals were brought to book in any satisfying way. And we're seeing that as well with the younger generation of family members of those who were killed by the apartheid regime in custody now calling on the MPH to launch proper investigations as is the case with Cape Town's imam Haron announced last week so there is definitely this kind of pushback i think driven by younger people as well that where was the justice during apartheid and the fact that you know there's still so much mystery and secrecy around what happened during that era is a problem and that's what allows these allegations to take root and be taken quite seriously in our society and the other problem frankly is poor historical education you know this is a countrywide problem that seems to span a lot of generations. You know, the idea that Subuque received preferential treatment because he was given a house on Robben Island, as opposed to the idea that the apartheid regime saw him as such a danger that he had to live in complete isolation lest he, you know, infect the minds of others. That's a real misunderstanding of the historical record. And I think something that, again, points to the fact that we need to know our history better.
0: The concord today. I haven't seen much coverage of what the arguments have been around this um, DA brought motion that Ramaphosa, um, well, that Jacob Zuma, and I suppose if the constitutional court rules in favour of the year's application, it would be binding on any cabinet reshuffle that Soroma Pozo or any future president might have to make, that he has to provide a record of decision as to why certain cabinet ministers were kept and some were removed. <laughs> I think it's probably a much shorter list of cabinet appointments made in the last several decades where one can go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, than mm. the other way around. Gee, I'd like to see his justification for that.
1: Mm. Mm. That's, I was thinking about this. I think what made Zuma's cabinet reshuffles seem perhaps more sinister and mysterious than was warranted was the way in which they were done. The fact that they were done literally under cover of darkness, late at night, suddenly a cabinet reshuffles coming. But I was also reminded, John, so the DA is now adamant that we should be able to see the record of decision, the reasons why a president wants to reshuffle the cabinet, which is perfectly understandable. I was reminded that Zuma did, in fact, sometimes give reasons. It was just that they were either inadequate or false. So you might recall when he reshuffled Nkratlanene, the most infamous perhaps of all, in 20... When was it? 2017? Yes, because he's 2015? going to the BRICS Bank. He's going to the BRICS Bank, a position that turned out, frankly, not to exist. There was another occasion, I think it was, in his 10th cabinet reshuffle in 2017, where he justified it simply by saying that he wanted younger, younger cabinet members. And the only... The only sort of youngish person he actually seems to have reshuffled at the time was Malusi Gigaba to, to finance minister. So he did give a few, a few reasons occasionally. And then some of the changes he made, to be fair to him, were self-evident. For instance, Dina Pule was shuffled straight after the Sunday Times had exposed her for corruption as communications minister. Collins Chabane died, minister of public administration. So there wasn't much that needed to be said about that. But I was, I was thinking about the, the cabinet reshuffles that I would most like to see the record of decision-making behind, John, and I've narrowed it down to three. Yes. Two of them are from Ramaphosa, and that would be the November 2018 decision to make Nomvula Mokinyan a head of environmental affairs because I think for Ramaphosa to produce a convincing motivation for that decision, given the disastrous Damage she inflicted on water affairs. I mean, it, what he could possibly pull out of the, the hat to justify that? I think would be novelistic in its in its creativity. But abile d'amini. Cyril Ramaphosa, again, that was 2018. But Cyril Ramaphosa,
0: in court papers in another case where the DA is asking a high court to force Cyril Ramaphosa to provide his reasons, in his legal papers there, he says it was a political decision. So he's, And that's it. I, I do not, you know... I need do, to explain um, further. The, what the Constitutional Court had said about her um, is, is not something that is germane to a political decision. And that cabinet decisions all over the world are at least in part political.
1: And I mean, I suppose that is a... Affair. It doesn't it certainly doesn't satisfy us or the public, but I mean, I suppose that is. However, I think on balance, John, the weirdest cabinet reshuffle ever, I still think, was the moving of Nati Mtetwa from the Minister of Police to the Arts and Culture Minister in 2014, the man who had effectively pre- presided over the Marikana massacre. Now, we know why he was moved. It was a demotion because the Arts and Culture Ministry is considered... You
0: know, <laughs> irrelevant. <laughs> who's complete? Who's completely? They're all completely useless. Who's more useless than the rest? Naughty. Put Arts him and there. culture. Yep.
1: I remember, however, interviewing Natim M on the day when he got made Arts and Culture Minister and asking him for his views on the controversy over the Brett Murray painting, the Spear, which had just happened. And his response was, "What is the Spear?" This is from the man who was to become Arts and Culture Minister and still is. An appointment that continues to blow my mind.
0: One uh, final thing we have uh, quick time for. You say, should the practice in local high schools on Valentine's Day of distributing flowers, etc., be stopped? I remember this day as one of extreme stress in high school.
1: Does this still happen, to your knowledge, John?
0: I, what would I know about what goes on in high schools, Rebecca? You have
1: youngish children, yes, by my standards. <laughs> Uh, It has been a practice For instance in single sex schools That flowers get distributed From the students at other schools To you And what it turns into Yes What it turns into Or it was in my day This is i matriculated in 1999 Literally last century Is it becomes a this kind of very stressful popularity contest, and people end off you know paying boys they know at other schools to deliver flowers it's, you didn 't
0: do that did you I'm,
1: I most definitely did I recall making a chocolate based barter arrangement um, it, it's just an, it was an incredibly anxiety producing day and I was thinking about this when reading about the backlash in Japan against valentine 's day i didn 't realize that in Japan it works the other way around whereby since 1958 in Japan, it's customary for women to give men chocolate on Valentine's Day. And then a month later, on March 14th, they have White Day and men give women chocolate back. However, women's complaint is, first of all, that men don't give chocolate back in a corresponding volume at all. So women end up spending much more on chocolate. But then secondly, (coughs) it's considered to be very disruptive to workplace morale because the popular male colleagues get all the chocolate and then you have these other poor losers sitting there Nary a chocolate bar in sight Not even a, a Twix, you know, or, or a Kit Kat And um, it it affects a comp- company's atmosphere very badly Which is exactly what happened in high school As I recall it And this is my um, justification, John For saying that down, down with it all
0: that's it. Down
1: with it all. Down
0: with this, it all. The
1: backlash in Japan against this has been started by a nine member fringe group called the Revolutionary Alliance of Unpopular People. I'm with them, John.
0: <laughs> the Revolutionary Alliance of Unpopular People. That's us. You're way too popular with us all to be allowed into that as a member. Rebecca Davis, thank you very much indeed.